You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Daphne Kohler, founder and CEO at Incitro and co-founder at Coursera and a professor of computer science and pathology at Stanford. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on theory and practice. So Alex, for this episode, I got to interview Daphne Kohler, founder and CEO at Incitro and co-founder at Coursera and a professor of computer science and pathology at Stanford. I gotta say that trio of titles says a lot about how amazing Daphne is. Absolutely, she is an absolutely amazing researcher and I'm really excited to hear the conversation. So what did you talk about? Everything, absolutely everything. But we started with how she got to where she is now. So I guess since we came from an academic family, it was always sort of in the cards that an academic career would be a possibility for me. And somehow at the age of, I think, 12, I came to the conclusion that I really wanted to go to college early. So this was kind of a weird thing for me to want to do, but I managed to talk my father into asking some of his colleagues at the Hebrew University whether his 13-year-old daughter could start attending college. Now, that was a little bit of a weird question, but they did some fairly lightweight testing on me and said, you know, sure, why not? She wants to attend some classes. We'll see how it goes. And so I started to attend college at the age of 13 and a half and just sort of went from there. And I ended up doing most of my college education in parallel with my high school education. Excellent. So, you know, maybe start and tell us a little bit about your PhD. Uh, Who is your advisor and who did you work on and what problems really sort of piqued your interest at that stage? point, I was really quite theoretical in my outlook. I really loved thinking about fun, interesting problems that had a certain mathematical elegance to them. So at that point, I was thinking about how humans reach decisions, both in single agents and multi-agent settings, and try to come up with cool mathematical models for those. And then what's the point at which you actually started to work on machine learning as we think of it today? So that transition started um, when I did my postdoc. And in fact, that was sort of a pivotal moment for me in a number of ways. I remember this really influential conversation with my postdoc advisors where he asked me, so, you know, you, you did all this really interesting and elegant math in your PhD thesis. Now imagine that I gave you this top-notch team of some of the best software uh, developer, um, undergrad or master's students here at Berkeley, and you had them implement something interesting from your thesis, what would you have them do? And I was totally dumbfounded because there was nothing really from my thesis other than mathematical elegance that had any practical implications. And so that really caused me to take a step back and think about what is it that I want to do? And I realized that I wanted to do something that had more actual impact. And that was the first step in what has been a progression, which we'll talk about later, I guess, of step after step of becoming more and more interested in making a real world impact. Let me fast forward a little bit and kind of tell us about founding Coursera. What motivated you to do it? What parts did you enjoy the most? What did you find to be the hardest? So to me, 
Coursera was in some ways maybe the largest step that I've taken on my progression in trying to do stuff that had real world relevance. So I went from theoretical machine learning to more applied machine learning to machine learning in the service of biology and medicine and, and so on. But I kept looking for that place to really do something that touched the lives of real people. And part of that was the work that I did even while at Stanford on making education better for both Stanford students and people outside Stanford. And so that gave rise in the fall of 2011 to the launch of the three first MOOCs, as they are uh, now called, Massive Open Online Courses. And we really had no idea how that experiment would turn out. There was really no attempt at marketing or publicity. There was mostly just a New York Times article that went viral. And within a matter of weeks after that, each of those three courses suddenly had an enrollment of 100,000 people or more. And that was kind of a mind-blowing number because when do you ever get to teach 100,000 people? And it brought home the realization that there was a moment in time to really have unparalleled impact relative to anything that I'd done before. And so that was what led me in the beginning of 2012 to take a, what was then a leave of absence from Stanford and found Coursera. So if you're asking what is the part that I really am most proud of in terms of that accomplishment, it's the fact that we were able to touch the lives not of hundreds of thousands of people, but of tens of millions of people. There are 29 million learners last I checked who had registered on Coursera, and a large fraction of them had taken at least part of a class. Many of them have completed courses and had significant benefits of their lives and their careers by doing so. At Coursera, every Friday, we had an all-hands meeting, and every single time we used to read a learner story of someone who sent an email or posted something on the forum telling us how this educational experience, the access to education, had transformed their lives. And so I think that, to me, was the most rewarding thing, is the ability to have made that level of impact on the lives of people. Okay, so maybe let's go on and tell us a little bit about the transition to Calico. What made you decide to do it? Coursera was on a good trajectory, but the next stage of the company would really be about developing business strategy and business models and might not have as much of a technical problem-solving aspect as I would like. And at the same time, I saw simultaneously both the machine learning revolution happening in so many different areas and making a huge impact in the application of novel machine learning techniques to really challenging problems. And what characterized those areas was the availability simultaneously of very large data sets and the availability of people who were bilingual in understanding the problem domain, but also being fluent in machine learning. And I realized that we were about to hit that phase in biology and there needed to be someone who really understood that data, but also understood machine learning to really get the maximum out of information that we can and impact human health. So you've been involved in a number of successful collaborations between biology and computer science. Maybe you could walk us through one or two collaborations that you really found the most fulfilling, both at an intellectual level as well as at a human level. So let me go back to the most recent collaboration prior to my leaving Stanford. This was 
in the area of computational pathology, arguably it was either the first or among the very few first applications of machine learning to pathology. And this was driven by a PhD student that I had who was actually an MD pathologist doing his PhD in biomedical informatics. And what we decided to do was to take a data-driven approach to pathology. So we took a bunch of cancer biopsy images of breast cancer tumors, as seen under the microscope, what are called H&E-stained images. And we used the computer vision techniques of the day, which have greatly been superseded at this point by deep learning, but that was the state of the art at the time. And instead of doing what is typically done, which is look at the exact same set of features that uh, pathologists have always used for grading cancer images, we took a data-driven view, which means that we quantitated probably hundreds of different features of the images, some of which made absolutely no sense, or we didn't know if they would make any sense. And it included things like the shape of different kinds of nuclei and the average distance between nucleus of this type and of that type, and you know, just basically hundreds of them. And we plugged them into a machine learning algorithm to figure out which of those were most predictive of five-year survival. And we didn't incorporate any biases from known biology. And a couple of interesting things came out of that. First of all was the fact that the machine learning algorithm was considerably better at predicting prognosis than your average pathologist. They were about as good as a team of top-notch pathologists that had to achieve consensus, but they were definitely better than what a, a standard pathologist in the clinic was able to do. So that was one thing already, which from a, the perspective of clinical care is potentially quite significant. So, you know, that's a really beautiful example. And as you're describing it, I couldn't help but think of many problems in medicine that would benefit from a machine learning approach, whether it's radiology or um, lots of things in diagnostics. What do we need to be able to scale efforts like the one you described just now to address lots of problems in medicine? What are we missing? Why hasn't it happened yet? That's a wonderful question, Anthony. I think the first answer to that is simply the ease of accessing data. It's actually shocking how little there is of consolidated, easily accessible data sets that allow the application of these techniques to take place. Things are very fragmented, uh, often analyzed using different bioinformatic pipelines, so it's very hard to combine different data sets without running into all sorts of artifacts that have nothing to do with the biology. And there's just not enough culture of sharing data, both in terms of the patients themselves and asking them for consent and in terms of the culture of the, of the scientific community. So one thing that I would just say is if we could instill norms, um, the data sharing is something that benefits all of us and certainly benefits clinical care, that would transform the field. And I'm obviously very cognizant of the importance of patient privacy and the need for people to have control over their own data. But I think one is often surprised when you hear the stories of how eager patients are to share their data if they feel like it would help make medical care better, not even just for themselves, but also for others. And then finally, I would say the next big piece is just getting more people who are trained in both languages, both the language of biology medicine and the language of machine learning, so that one can really apply best-of-breed machine learning to those kinds of data sets. Wow, so that's a great answer. Let me pull on a few different threads that you fleshed out. So first, 
you know, the people who speak both languages. So, you know, imagine that someone who's uh, just finishing up their residency and has a technical background approached you and said, I want to get involved in bringing machine learning into medicine. But the last time I wrote code was six years ago before I started med school. I'm not sure that I want to be heads down writing code. What would you tell them to do? I would say that it is important for them to at least have some meaningful interactions with people who do code and understand what it is that machine learning can and can do. So it's not a magic black box. So sit in an environment where there are people of both disciplines. And I think, yes, refresh your memory on how to code. Even if you're not going to be a software engineer full time, really living what it is and is not possible, maybe pair programming with someone who's a better code developer but doesn't fully understand the biology, I think is a great way to just get trained up. So let's go back to the data sharing side for a second. Why is it that we're better able to share consumer data sets or enterprise data sets than we are medical data sets? What are the cultural or structural or economic factors that have made it that way? Well, it's a great question. I think partly the reason why we're better able to share consumer data sets is that when you go on the web, there has been a norm of you click through the appropriate terms of service, which no one reads very carefully. Uh, sometimes perhaps they should. But as a consequence, it's actually kind of shocking when you think about how much of our personal life is fully visible to, say, our credit card company and a whole bunch of other people without us even being cognizant of it. Now, I think obviously medical data is even more exposing and one needs to take extra care with it. But even so, I think there hasn't been a norm of let's have this question be asked and let's have the default be such that anonymized versions of the data can be shared for research purposes, not for marketing purposes, you know, not for targeting, certainly not with your insurance company, but for the purpose of improving research for medical care, that should be the default to that is yes. And one of the analogies that I always keep in mind is the difference between, on, on the organ donation side, between countries where the default is opt-in versus countries where the default is opt-out. And in the U.S., we have an in culture for organ donation, and as a consequence, organ donation rates are abysmally low, whereas many European countries have a default of opt-out. It gives people the same amount of control, but it sends a message that really the default should be that you're part of the organ donation community. And organ donation rates, I think, are 4x or more higher in those countries. Wonderful. So we're coming up on time. I'd like to close out with one last question. So in your 2012 TED Talk, you quoted the New York Times' Tom Friedman, who said, the big breakthroughs come when what is suddenly possible meets what's desperately necessary. Where do you think we're seeing the intersection of those two areas today? On the desperately necessary side, I see that despite the fact that we are progressing as a society, many societies still have increasing disease burden, increasing cost of healthcare, and very uneven access to the best healthcare. In terms of what is suddenly possible, I think we're suddenly starting to see the availability of large data sets that really give us an angle into these different problems. Data that is 
of sufficient size that we can really start applying novel computational methods to extract insights from it of sufficient breadth that we can start figuring out what patients are likely to benefit from what therapeutic intervention and when, so we are no longer in the realm of one-size-fits-all medicine. So I think that we are in the intersection of those two areas in the realm of biology, healthcare, big data, and machine learning. And I think it's going to be an exciting 10 years looking forward. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat with you today. It was a pleasure to chat with you too, Anthony. Thank you for um, taking the time. Daphne Kohler, founder and CEO at Incitro, a co-founder at Coursera, and a professor of computer science and pathology at Stanford. A very cool conversation. So Alex, we both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everyone either brings a problem that can be solved or a technology for solving many types of problems. And we kind of go over this idea of hammers and nails and how to pair them. Do you have a cool idea you want to talk about today? Yeah, I do. We touched on this idea very briefly before. But this idea of learning what your models have learned or kind of interpretable machine learning is something that would be kind of interesting to talk through and the implications in biology. This is an area of really active research. There's some really excellent stuff going on. It's still in its infancy. So tell me a little bit about it. So I've now, in the past, you've talked to me about um, ImageNet and other sort mm-hmm. of deep learning algorithms. So now I've, I've trained some model yep. and it predicts, you know, cats. Right. How do I get insight into what is, I presume, millions of weights in my deep learning right. network. I guess the first starting place is what do you want to know? Right. So like what about images are you curious in terms of what the model has captured? So an example of what you, you might want to know is like what kinds of features and images do these models actually pick up on and what do they ignore? So there's a couple different ways of doing this, and the kind of number of ways of doing this have proliferated. And to kind of get a better sense of, I mean, there's some really stunningly beautiful visualizations that are on an online publication called Distill. This is something that a former scientist at, at Google, he's now at OpenAI, worked on. His name is Chris Ola, and he has many collaborators that have helped him to kind of build this ecosystem. But Distill is this online journal for ideas that are not new, but for ideas oh. that need better explaining. Oh, interesting. So it's Very really cool. an incredible platform. They've done a lot of work around explaining the ideas behind interpretable machine learning and you know many, many other topics. Right. Can't recommend enough to go kind of browse through Super those papers. Cool. They're, they're really, really beautifully done. One thing you might ask, there are these things inside of neural networks. We call them neurons. I mean, they're not actually biological neurons, but they are little mathematical operations that are kind of activated when they get certain inputs and they're not activated when they get other inputs, right? So a really simple example would be like a filter in like a convolution. And what I mean by that is like, you might have a little operation which looks at each pixel and says, if the center pixel is bright and the one on my right is bright and the one on my left is bright, but none of the other pixels are bright, then I'm happy and I'm gonna activate. And, you know, that's oh. that's a filter, right? And there might be different orientations of pixels where you might want like a, a diagonal line at 45 degrees and that's what activates you. So you can look at what are the activating patterns of pixels for any part of a neural network. You can say, okay, what patterns in the image are actually turning this thing on and turning this thing off? And one of the kind of more famous marquee results that, you know, actually kicked off quite a bit of excitement in neural networks is when 
Google first started training extremely large neural networks, and they looked at many neurons, and they found one. It was trained on YouTube, by the way, so like a lot, a lot, a lot of frames from YouTube. And they found a neuron that was activated most when it looked like there was a cat in the image. They found uh, a cat neuron that was selective for all the cats on YouTube. So that's an amazing result. And actually, I remember when I was a second-year medical student, I took a class called Neuro 200, which was like the neuroscience class that the med students and the PhD students for neuro neuroscience took. And there was this famous result from monkeys where they were recording from a monkey brain and there was actually an O.J. Simpson neuron. It only fired when this one image of O.J. Simpson showed up on the screen. That's excellent. Yeah. That's so Okay, excellent. so the, you found the cat neuron. Yes, I guess we can like pop up a level and talk about different ways you can extract information from neural networks. And there's kind of a myth that I would like to bust, the idea that these models are black boxes. They're not black boxes in the sense that you can't look at what's inside of them. I mean, it's all code and data. It's all on the computer. You can look at any part of it. It's just that it's a little bit incomprehensible. It's really complex. It's not designed for human consumption. You can't read a story that tells you what's going on inside of there. So I think a better analogy is it's a room without the lights on. We don't know where the light switch is, and we've got little candles, and they don't light the whole room, but we can kind of selectively figure out, okay, if we twiddle this thing here, it you know, changes that thing over there. And so we've got a lot of tools for kind of like looking selectively at you know, what these networks are picking up on. And there's been a whole host of innovations and techniques to try to figure out, okay, what parts of the network are responsive to what you know, parts of the input? And one of the really key and central results is that as you move from the images all the way through the network to the ultimately the classification layer where you say, okay, yes, there's a cat or yes, there's a dog, you get increasing levels of generalization. So you start from really local features like edges, and then you move to larger features like kind of center surround. Like these are things that kind of look like what, you know, Hubel and Weasel saw in sure. Cat Cortex, the work they got yeah. the Nobel Prize for. That analogy has been really exciting for the field for quite some time. It's not a perfect analogy. Like they are not biological neural networks. I want to stress that like very heavily. But it seems like just like in the brain, these neural networks are using increasing levels of generalization. So you go from you know, more complicated kind of edge-like local structures all the way to like textures, and then you go to objects, and then you go to even more complicated amalgamations of objects. And there's different ways of pulling out these features and kind of understanding what exactly each layer of the neural network is looking at. But they all kind of seem to show that general pattern, which is like you move from really, really small local stuff to like broad kind of general things the closer you get to the actual decision that you need to make in the model. Let me ask a really concrete question, and this shows up a lot in um, applications of ML to medicine, mm -hmm. which is you can imagine like a classifier that calls lung cancer and chest x-rays right. with perfect accuracy. At least in the beginning to get clinical adoption, it's not enough because you need to be able to kind of point to the features that are causing you to Absolutely. cause the cancer. So would it work? So let's say that I train a bunch of chest x-rays and I've labeled them with cancer and non-cancer. How do I actually go about then doing something that would tell a doctor what are the features that are causing this diagnosis? That's a fantastic question. That problem shows up in more than just that place. Anywhere where people are collaborating with machine learning models or yep. using them as tools, like you want to kind of know how your tool works. Right? You yeah. want to be able to diagnose it. The two ways that I've seen people address this successfully, at least in medicine, is to use heat maps and to use error bars. And so for heat maps, you can take the original image and you can overlay some heat map. 
like if you're looking at the weather report, you can see right. kind of clouds and the darker and redder it is, the more severe the rain is. You can do the same thing for any image and you can say, okay, here's a cloud where it's really dark and red. And that means this is a part of the image that's really important for that classification. So how does that get computed? So, so my input is the image and my output is a zero or a one. Right. What are the things that I'm using to compute the heat map? There's a bunch of variations on how to do that, but the essence basically is if you were to delete that part of the image, how much would it influence your prediction? So if you were to totally delete a part of an x-ray that actually contained a tumor, yep. you'd expect that you would predict no tumor. Right? Okay. And so that that would dramatically change the output decision of your model. And so you can do this selectively across the whole image yep. and you know just save how much you affected the decision of that particular pixel yep. and then ma make that the heat map. And do you do it one pixel at a time or do you do kind of a block? There's a whole bunch of different methods for doing this, okay. and it's not always ablations, but like you can do it in multiple scales and average them. You can do it pixel by pixel. Yep. Um, the easiest and you know easiest way to start is to do it pixel by pixel, um, or to find some length scale that you think is important. But there's there's a lot of different ways of doing it. But the the essence is the same, which is you want something that's the same shape and kind of notion and like semantic space of the image, and you want it like a, a measure of importance. Yep. It's like it's got a spatial coordinate to it. And is this felt to be kind of a solved problem in terms of we have mechanisms that work or it's still active? It's still really active. There are certain cases where we're pretty satisfied with the kinds of heat maps that we're getting out in the sense that like you can do this, for instance, for uh, diabetic retinopathy. You can okay. look at a fundus image. You can look at the back of the eye and you can classify the severity of diabetic retinopathy of that image. This is something that people in Google Health have been doing. Sure. They published on this uh, several different papers. And you can build a heat map. And you can say, okay, what part of the image is most important for this classification? And it ends up being clinically relevant parts of the image, like the vasculature on the back sure. of the eye. So it's an orthogonal, like a separate verification that the things that the model is looking at are probably things that a doctor would look at as well. Fair, because you can yeah. imagine it could have features like where the images were collected and if they're collected from a diabetic retinopathy center or right. a general ophthalmology clinic. Right. And if you could tell the, yeah, I, I can, you know, it could help avoid confounding, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So like, for instance, a lot of medical imaging has metadata printed on the top and the side. Well, that makes the problem easier, doesn't like it? Like if you, if you were to see, for instance, that right. your interpretability method was like literally reading the diagnosis codes on the yeah. image, that's actually a good diagnostic that you need to like try again right. <laughs> because yeah. it's not going to actually help you in the right. wild. It's like the, the, the greatest predictor of death is whether or not you've called the chaplain, at yeah. least in, in medical records. Yeah. Uh, and so like, that's not useful. And so that's an example where interpretability is actually, you know, can be used to almost debug or like fix up a machine learning model is if it's attending to the wrong things. The other example is, is to give error bars. So to say, okay. okay, I believe there is a tumor in this image, but I'm only 65% sure. Okay. That is an area of also very active research. And the reason is neural networks generally give us very bad probabilities. They are mm. pathologically overconfident. Let's say we're classifying digits in an image, like 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, et cetera. And you look at the likelihood that the neural network thinks that a 1 is in the image if it is. It's right. going to be so like... It's 70%, and then you take 1,000 of those, more than 700 are... Exactly. Right. That's the notion of calibration, is like for the frequency of the time that you're getting this right, you know, your probability of predicting that it is that class should match that. And so usually what you see is the neural network predicts with 99% probability that it's the thing that it thinks that it is, regardless of if it right. is. Right. Uh, and this is an area that people are working really, really hard on. So um, my colleague Jasper Snook is kind of making a research program out of really digging very deeply into this because it's important in so many different domains. And you couldn't just do permutation testing? 
Uh, can you unpack what you mean by that? Well, so imagine, you know, I have labels, uh, cancer, non-cancer, and then I could permute those labels. Right. And get out the probabilities of what I know to be wrong and then recalibrate. Absolutely. So there's a whole host of methods for, let's say you've got probabilities and they're wrong for shifting them. Yeah. Right. So that they're right. And yeah, there's a bunch of different ways of doing that. Temperature scaling. This guy, John Platt, invented this. Um, He's at Google. And there's a, a couple other techniques that kind of take the probabilities that your neural network is already providing you. You don't touch the network and you just, you know, rescale these probabilities. That's one way to do it. And it can definitely help. But you'd ideally like your model to do this for you out of the box. You'd like to know that, like, the thing that you're training is actually kind of has a a realistic view of probabilities in the world for the slice of the world that you show it. And that's something that's, like, not solved yet. Surprisingly, the kind of current best way of doing this is just to train a bunch of models and average them. So, like, instead of training one model, you train 100. And together, you call that an ensemble. And you look at the probabilities that it thinks a particular class is true. So, like, is there a you know, in tumor in this image? And you just average the probabilities that they think there's cancer in this image. And that actually ends up doing okay. It's, like, not fancy. And there's yep. really, really fancy ways of doing this. And right now, the not fancy way seems to be the way that actually, like, works pretty well. That's fascinating. I think that wraps it up today on Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wolchko. And I'm Anthony Filipakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice.com at gv.com.